Hello and welcome to episode 240 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Hello, Ian. How did your move go? It went well, thank you. Yeah, it went about as well as one can expect a move to go. I'm recording from the new recording space. New studio. It's just the new call studio. It a studio. Yeah. I will, well, sure, we'll call it a studio. There's a microphone, there's headphones, there's a computer, it's a studio. So yeah, everything's going well. We're getting unpacked and finding things that we didn't know we owned. I found an American West 747 model that I forgot I had. Wow. So how do you I'm not sure how it got packed up. Something like that. It's one of those like small, the small Gemini jets. And it was apparently already in a box. And so when I went to unpack said box, I was like, oh, neat. So there you go. That's nice. Well, for those not paying attention at home, Ian moved houses recently. I'm pretty sure your new house is in between runway four left and right at O'Hare. So that's nice. Yeah. So I went from basically directly under to... 27 Center to just north of 27 Center and just south of 27 Right. So, switched views of the same runway. So, that'll all work out as far as plane spotting goes. That's nice. It's, it's important to know those things when house hunting. What runways and what approaches will I have a view of from this new housing situation? You got to know that. I'm excited because this moves me back into the closer to the departure path than I was previously. So I'm excited about that when they're departing to the east. That's nice. It's the small things. The house is fine too. (laughs) I mean, not so much interested in that, but good. That's nice to know. So I've spent my week moving and doing all all sorts of good fun things like that. You, sir, had a bit more of an AvGeek adventure. I did. So round two of an attempt to fly a seaplane off the East River with the little operation Tailwind here in the Northeast. They do a lot of seaplane operations. One of those routes happens to be from Manhattan, East 23rd Street on the East River up to Boston. And I was supposed to do that last month, or I guess it is now the next month, but I was supposed to do that in September. But the weather for many weekends in a row here was just awful. And I picked a new date out of a hat and got an absolutely spectacular day for what turned out to be a very quick flight on a Cessna 208 seaplane, I believe off the East River. We did a little 180 around the Southern Battery, the Southern tip of Manhattan, went up the Hudson River, cut across and made a straight line for Boston Harbor. It was fun, Ian. It was a lot of fun. I unfortunately could not participate because you can't take a seaplane from Chicago to New York. But That'd be a long flight. I mean, it New- would be. Manhattan to Boston Harbor was about an hour and 20 minutes. And That's a little longer than your typical flight, but the magic there is that we went to the departure point in Manhattan, East 23rd Street, kind of a hybrid marina seaplane terminal thing, and we just got on the plane. It was just coming in from outside of Boston. We watched it land on the river. We got in, and it left. So the total time from curb to getting on the airplane to taking off was like was measured in seconds, not even minutes at that point. And it was pretty... Pretty great. And I think the most interesting part of Tailwind was just the operations of how you come in and out of the Manhattan area. It's some of the world's most congested airspace with the three major airports, plus all of the helicopters and all the VFR traffic and all of the everything going on. And it's just, they do it so often that they're so accustomed to it. And this is a, a two pilot operation 
with Tailwind. This is not just not like most Cape Air flights where there's one pilot in the left seat and a passenger can sit in the right seat. Unfortunately, this is they kind of need two pilots here to manage docking. I guess. But one of the most interesting (laughs) things was just taking off out of Manhattan, how much traffic there was and how much other stuff, not just airplanes, but boats that they had to deal with. At one point, we actually got hit by the wake, not the wake turbulence, the wake of a ferry, which created quite a lot of turbulence on board the little Cessna, actually, which was interesting. But once we took off, the TCAS system was just kind of going nuts with other traffic, just saying traffic 11 o'clock, traffic 12 o'clock, traffic 1 o'clock, traffic above, traffic below. And it was just interesting to see how they deal with it. And they're so accustomed to it. It wasn't a problem, but it was just fun looking out the windows on any side and really seeing a helicopter here, a little Cessna 172 out there. Oh, there's an NYPD helicopter over there. And then you get outside of New York and it's just serene. There's just nothing going on. You make a straight line to the Boston Harbor and you land just outside of Logan and then that's it. It was a lot of fun. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And we can see pictures hopefully somewhere because that would sure. be Sure. I'll send you over some pictures. We can put them on in the show notes. What Excellent. I probably won't provide is any pictures from the very slow Amtrak Northeast regional train on the way home, <laughs> which instead of an hour and 20 minutes was four and a half hours. So Oof. you can see the time advantage there is significant. Yeah. Okay. You ready to jump in? You're sold here. I'm sold. You're sold on the situation. We got to get something going on the lake out there between Chicago and Milwaukee, maybe? Sure. Sure. Why not? not? Man, we thought last week we had seen (sighs) the pinnacle of, I don't want to use the word crazy, but crazy events happening in the flight deck. One week later, it has been upstaged. Ian, tell us what happened. So here's the thing. We don't know much about what exactly happened. But we know enough to gasp. What we do know is the charging document that has been issued in the district court in in Salt Lake City. And that is Jonathan Dunn, who is now a former Delta first officer, is charged with one count of interfering with a flight crew. And you might be thinking to yourself, oh, is this another situation with an off-duty pilot? No, my friends. This was a situation where the on-duty first officer is charged with threatening to shoot the captain if they diverted the aircraft due to an ongoing medical emergency. Okay. There's a lot to unpack there. So let's unpack this a bit. There was an onboard medical emergency. We don't know what flight this was. So we don't know where it was coming from. We don't know where it was going to. And we also don't know, importantly, to try and figuring out which flight this was, we don't know if the flight actually diverted. We don't even know the actual date that this occurred on. The indictment only says on or about August 22nd, 2022. So this was over a year ago, plus or minus. Right. If we take August 22nd as the date of fact and just chalk up the on or about to legalese in the indictment, there were 74 diverted Delta flights. And the ones that diverted to Salt Lake City were not A320 aircraft. We know that the pilot who's been charged was an A320 family operator. And so the, the flights that diverted to Salt Lake City that day were not operated by A320s. So We don't know where the flight was coming from. We don't know where it was going to, but we know there was a medical emergency on board. And we also know from the charging document that the first officer then 
there was a conversation, I assume, about whether or not to divert the aircraft. And the first officer then threatened the captain and said that he would shoot the captain multiple times if the captain diverted the aircraft. So here's where it gets interesting. This was possibly not an empty threat. When someone says, oh, I'm going to shoot you, you may not take them at face value. But in this case, this pilot was technically a sworn officer of the law as he participated in the Federal Flight Deck Officer Program, which you may not be very familiar with. It's under the TSA and then therefore the Homeland Security umbrella, but it is a post-9-11 program where pilots of commercial and, and freight aircraft can apply to basically become a quasi- air marshal and actually carry a loaded weapon on board their aircraft on duty while operating the aircraft. So this is probably not an empty threat. This is a person who was in the position to make good on this threat if they actually wanted to, which is not a situation you probably come across all that often. A lot of this threats like this is hyperbole or just someone who's drunk. This is actually a sworn officer of the law, technically, with permission and actual physical permits to carry a weapon on board the aircraft and could have actually, I guess, made good on this threat, which is just yeah. wild. I mean, this all came to light last night. So Tuesday, the 31st of October, when the Department of Transportation's Office of Inspector General posted a notice that they were investigating this incident after the grand jury had returned an indictment against this former first officer. The DOT OIG said that Dunn interfered with the performance of a crew member by using a dangerous weapon to assault and intimidate the captain. So it's not clear what happened, but it sounds like they were ready to make good on their threat. So no one has really commented on this. The U.S. Attorney's Office has not. Delta Airlines has not. Beyond to say that Dunn is no longer employed by the airline and the TSA and the OIG, no one has commented because they don't want to comment on an ongoing investigation and an ongoing criminal proceeding. So the arraignment of Dunn will occur on the 16th of November. So in two weeks' time in Salt Lake City, it is at that time we should learn a bit more about what the government alleges happened on the flight deck of this aircraft. But a very, very scary situation here where a person who was authorized to carry a firearm on a commercial aircraft threatened to use it if the captain diverted the aircraft in service of someone on board having a medical emergency. Yeah, this isn't like a response to a heated argument in the middle of a boring cruise flight or anything like that. This was in response to one of the pilots taking the best interest of one of their passengers into account. And remember, a flight crew is always there for the safety and well-being of the passengers on board. Any U.S. crew will tell you that is their highest number one priority. And here you have one pilot literally threatening to kill their fellow pilot if they possibly diverted the aircraft due to a medical situation, which I don't even really know if obviously is their call at the end of the day, but if they have medical personnel on board or if they use MedLink or something like that where the 
remote doctor says, you should land this plane as soon as you can because this passenger needs medical care, the flight crew should be doing that. It really shouldn't be their call to not divert the aircraft if medical professionals are telling them to do it. At this point, I think the only question that we can ask is, has the Federal Flight Deck Officer Program outlived its usefulness? From my point of view, and this is completely subjective, yes, it is time to get rid of this program. If you look at the Wikipedia entry, there is not a single entry of anything useful coming out of this program, but there sure are a number of incidents of things going wrong, such as on March 24th, 2008, a U.S. Airways pilot's gun went off on a flight from Denver to Charlotte. And another one, a bag with the weapon was accidentally picked up by a passenger. And then another one, a United Airlines pilot, threw live ammo in the trash before flushing it down the toilet after accidentally carrying it on an international flight. Other cases of the weapon being left on board and and other things happening, it just seems like maybe this was good intentions in the wake of 9-11, but no good has ever actually come out of this program. And it really doesn't seem like anything good ever will come out of it, but it's almost a certainty that negative, stupid things like this will, and it is time to rethink this program. Yeah. I mean, there were a number of reactions post 9-11 where the grasping for any measure that could be deemed to increase safety in any way, shape, or form could be passed. And I think this was one of them where, you know, Some good intentions here, but also the incidents that you've mentioned, and I'm sure the others that have occurred without being listed in that article, plus the passage of all the regulations regarding flight deck doors and modifications and the addition of a secondary barrier and things like that that are coming to pass now. I mean, at this point, I can't disagree with Jason and say that, you know, perhaps it's time to review how this program is being implemented and if it's still necessary. Yeah, it just seems like it's time for this to go. Even in the best case scenario, I can't imagine what having this weapon on board would really do in any positive way. It seems like just a horrible, horrible place to even think about using a firearm. It's just not a good idea. Bad idea all around. I get why it existed at one point in time. Sure. Yeah, time for this to go. Yeah. Let's go back to last week when we thought we had reached the top of the mountain on this kind of thing. And we talked about the involvement of psychedelic mushrooms. And we talked about the statement from the lawyer that said Emerson was not under the influence when he boarded the flight. And going back and reading that, he says that he took them multiple days, two days before the flight, and then had not slept for 40 hours. So... I don't know enough about how psychedelic mushrooms work. And if you do podcast at FR24, you can (laughs) school me and maybe Jason, I don't know. But I just wanted to point out the timeline has been clarified on when the psychedelic mushrooms were ingested and when he got on the plane. Other than that, we don't really know much more about what happened than we did last week. And he's been arraigned and is awaiting the next steps there. Okay, then. Yeah, yeah. Also getting underway this week is the JetBlue Spirit Antitrust Trial. Oh, finally. The Department of Justice, it was delayed a week or so because of the government, Congress funding bills and things like that. But it is underway. Today was day two. So nothing like getting started on Halloween to set the mood. And 
it's going. I mean, we don't really have much in the way of what's happened so far in the trial. We're going to kind of wait and see how things go in totality. One thing I think we should mention, and this was flagged by our friend Ned Russell over at Skift at Airline Weekly, but a lot of financial analysts, and one financial analyst in particular, are calling for JetBlue to renegotiate the deal to buy Spirit based on the fact that Spirit is losing a ton of money and their stock price is nearly worthless Yeah, compared to where they were. Yeah. One of those calls came from Jamie Baker, I believe, that said, you need to go back and rethink this because things have changed since JetBlue first pursued Spirit. Market forces are different now. Spirit is going to have a lot of trouble in the near-term future, not only because there are competitive forces outside of its control, but also the Pratt & Whitney issues affecting a large chunk of its fleet. Hopefully not my two flights this coming Sunday, knock on wood. But there are a lot of factors dragging down spirit at this point. And JetBlue still wants it, but maybe it paid a little too much for it or offered too much. So far in the trial, it's been a lot of setup, a lot of here's how airlines work, here's how slots work, here's the basics, here's what the offer was. If you want to follow the play-by-play, TPG's David Slotnick is there somewhere in some very sad overflow court The overflow room. The overflow room, (laughs) watching on a live feed. He's provided an excellent play-by-play on Twitter. I recommend going through his tweets to see what he's been saying. Not much news at this point, but Things should be getting spicy in the coming days and weeks. Yeah. So we'll we'll keep an eye on the trial. And if news truly does happen before the conclusion and verdict, then we'll bring it to you in that week's episode. A few weeks ago, we began to process, Jason and I began to process SAS leaving Star Alliance, moving under the Air France KLM umbrella. And last week, our friend Brett Schneider over at Cranky Flyer put together an interesting piece that I very much enjoyed. And I put a link to it in the show notes because I think it's worth reading. It's titled, SAS Wisely Ditches Star Alliance and Realigns with Air France KLM. And his argument was one of SAS's place in the world and how SAS connects to the rest of Europe. And he walks through the argument that Jason and I have made a few times that we thought the SAS would just become a whole wholly owned subsidiary of the Lufthansa Group and join Brussels and Swiss and Austrian. And his argument using kind of the root network metrics makes the case for you know the connectivity from Scandinavia and from the Nordics really coming into Amsterdam and Paris. And so I thought that that was a really interesting thing to look at and a way of looking at things to really put this into context. And then this week, Air France and KLM basically made the same argument in their third quarter earnings call, saying SAS's eventual membership in the Air France, KLM, Delta, and Virgin Atlantic's joint venture members of SkyTeam all, that would really be the way forward. And the interesting thing here, at least for me, is the question that then comes, 
what happens to the Copenhagen hub and what happens to Amsterdam? Because as we've talked about over the past, I don't know how many weeks, Amsterdam is cutting flights left, right, and center. The Dutch government is really trying to cut flights in and out of Amsterdam any way they can, whether that's you know coming at the expense of, of KLM or any other airlines, they're really looking to cut flights. So if SAS is moving over into the Air France KLM umbrella, if they're joining the joint venture, that to me at least really develops the Copenhagen hub. Yeah. I'm not as sold as maybe other parties like Copenhagen or any of SAS's other hubs are really a connecting hub to the degree that Amsterdam is. Amsterdam is theoretically a very easy airport to connect through. I don't think any of the Nordic hubs are are really anywhere on that same level. They're much smaller airports. The connections there are not nearly as seamless. They're going to have to do some sort of modification to those airports to make that easier. But yeah, the three hub system that SAS has now obviously will cannot carry forward if it finds itself in Star Alliance. But Ian, we know we need to talk about more than just which hub will or will not survive. It's also the joint venture that I think you alluded to that yeah. is a, a major factor in why Air France KLM may want to bring SAS into the fold. And the joint venture, for lack of a better terms, is, how should I put this, legal price fixing, more or less, where the airlines can, I don't want to use the word collude, but they can collude to set the price cooperatively for fares across the Atlantic. And we see this with American and BA with their joint venture, including Iberia and a few other airlines, I think. Star Alliance has this with United, Lufthansa, Swiss, and a few others. And SkyTeam will now theoretically possibly include SAS, which to me is not great because SAS is not known for its fantastic service or anything. It's known for rock bottom, kind of full service, kind of low cost carrier fares. And I would be very sad to see if SAS fares suddenly go from industry low, affordable to whatever the Delta Sky Team Virgin Atlantic joint venture determines it to be, because I can guarantee it's going to be higher. That sucks. Yeah. From a customer perspective, it certainly won't be beneficial. That said, in a long-term view, and we've talked about this before, SAS's pricing model has always been, I think the only way to describe it is bonkers. I mean- More or less, yeah. That's a technical term though. Yeah, it's a very, very specific technical term. I mean, the pricing model is just, I don't understand how it works. And obviously, it didn't work because they going through the chapter 11 process. So, I mean, purely from a personal perspective, yeah, it's it's a bummer. But from a airline survival perspective, perspective and a perspective of trying to come out of out of bankruptcy it makes a little more sense yeah yep speaking of losing money we had a slew of third quarter earnings reports we won't bore you with that i guess the long and the short of it is large airlines made money low cost carriers either lost money or didn't make as much money but the one we're going to talk about is not an airline at all. It's Spirit Aerosystems that we've been talking about over the past few weeks. And that is the fact that they lost $204 million in the third quarter. Yeah, and they no lost $204 million in the third quarter on the back of all of these 
quality issues that they've been experiencing and the amount of money it's taken to rework all of the fuselage components that have needed a second or perhaps third look. And so, you know, this is a week after Boeing said that they're going to give them a very, very large check. So we'll see what happens in the fourth quarter, but ouch. Yeah, no sympathy from me here. You screw up a 60-year-old product that badly enough times, you should take a financial hit. Speaking of 737 fuselages, Southwest has ordered a whole bunch more of them. Well, they ordered the whole plane, but it starts with the fuselage. Southwest has ordered, late last week, ordered 108 additional 737-7s. So now by far the largest 737-7 airline, even before the aircraft is certified, which will hopefully happen at some point. By the end of this year, they're potentially claiming. So we'll see. Yeah. So 108 more for Southwest. And that grows to their order book for not just the Dash 7, but all 737 Maxes to more than 500. So more, Southwest has more than 500 737s on order. That's a lot of airplanes. I think they like that aircraft. I think it might make it. Yeah, um, maybe. Yeah. yeah, maybe. The 737's got a bright future. Yeah, especially for Southwest. But meanwhile, on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, Air New Guinea has finally signed a firm Airbus with order for a cute little six A220 100s. In addition, they'll acquire three A220 300s and another two A220 100s from third parties, but kind of the opposite end of the spectrum there. Not 108, we're talking maybe about 10 aircraft here, but it's noteworthy because this is an airline that's not replacing anything modern by any means. These are being acquired to phase out the Fokker 70 and 100, which I guess shed a little tear for that oddball, weirdo, old style aircraft. Those are becoming few and far between. But yeah, that's an interesting order. Yeah. Part of me is sad, obviously, from from an geek perspective. Part of me is very sad to see these older aircraft go. But another part of me is like, that's really cool to go from these older aircraft and having the issues that come along with having older aircraft and maintaining those things and then going, okay, we're going brand new. You know, we're not even doing used 737 NGs or anything like that. We're going, you know what? Let's do it. Let's go They're going to go from the issues involved in maintaining a 31-year-old Fokker 100 to the issues involved with owning a zero-year-old Airbus A220 (laughs) with engines that don't work. So they're going to have issues, but they're going to be very different issues. There'll be different issues and it'll be very comfortable inside. Yes. And my experience with Fokkers has been very comfortable. Only if you sit right next to the engine and make it as loud as possible. There's that too. Hey, let's go back to Southwest for a second and talk about the fact that today at the Skift Aviation Forum in Dallas, Southwest said it's looking at DFW in perhaps 2025, mostly because or all because they're just running out of space at Love Field. So kind of the same thing they did in Chicago. They basically ran out of space at Chicago's Midway where they're by far the dominant carrier and started flights up at O'Hare. So I I guess it's Dallas's turn. That's definitely interesting for an airline that just a few years ago would never have considered a flight out of one of its core airports. I think it's a little different than the Chicago situation. And in Dallas, they just straight up run out of space 
at Dallas Love Field. So they're going a little down the street to DFW. We're in Chicago. I don't have to tell you that the markets for Midway and O'Hare, they are very different parts of the city. There are some people who I'm sure would never consider going to Midway, probably you. And there are some people who would never consider going to O'Hare. They're different markets, much like the case here in New York where Southwest for a while operated flights out of Newark in addition to LaGuardia years after branching out from Islip way out on Long Island, which barely is even considered the New York market. But I think that the move to DFW is a little bit different than the Chicago move, which I think was more of a playing for a different market rather than DFWRs. Just they need more runway. They just need more space. Fair enough. Jason, you flagged this particular story and what? Yeah. Explain this. This is a valid reaction. So anyone who's followed the the antics of the Lufthansa group over the last few years is familiar with the still hypothetical, not real, allegrous business class product. It was announced the better part of a decade ago to much fanfare, and it looked very nice nearly a decade ago. And it was, a decade ago? A decade ago, and it was awarded, <laughs> and I'm air quoting here, awarded five stars by Skytrax, and I'm still air quoting, which has since been removed because the product still does not exist, and that fifth star <laughs> was, again, air quoting, awarded contingent on this product rolling out, which it still has not. Mm-hmm. But the latest news is that somebody screwed up bad in Frankfurt and didn't consider, huh, The 747 is an aircraft that does exist in our fleet. The news is basically that I don't know if Lufthansa has actually confirmed this. This might be all rumor at this point, but they will have to install their fancy new business class announced almost a decade ago in the main deck of the 747-8i, but keep the old business class on the upper deck because it simply does not fit up there since the width of the aircraft is a bit different, of course, than the lower deck. It's much narrower. On top of that, the new business class seats are so heavy that Lufthansa will have to reportedly add a 700 kilogram weight in the rear of the aircraft for weight and balance purposes that they'll have to offset the added weight up in business class with literally, I don't know, bricks in the rear of the aircraft that will not only result in the aircraft towing around dead weight, but also reduce cargo capacity and possibly passenger capacity. It's just really just a stunning development in a program that should be done by now, not just considering, oh, wait, it's not going to fit on one of our aircraft that we have almost two dozen of. We should do something about that. The myth of German efficiency, I think, is just that. It's a myth at this point. It no longer exists. We're not quite at New Berlin airport level of debacle, but man, we're getting there. But we're getting close. We're getting there. We're just one more screw up away from Brandenburg. That's not a benchmark you want yourself compared to. In any way, shape, or form, it is not. But they did it. They got that airport running, and even Lufthansa can figure this issue out. It's just... What is going on there? Like at some point, you know, let's see the product. Sure. Put it on a plane. Sure. But at the same time, I would not be shocked if the EU commission got involved here and say, you cannot call your airline green or efficient or carbon neutral if you are artificially increasing the weight of your aircraft because your product is too heavy. That's kind of shocking and should raise all sorts of eyebrows, certainly raising my eyebrows, but I wouldn't be shocked if it raises some official eyebrows. It's also one of the things that like at this point, and I don't know the answer to this question, 
that I'm about to ask. But at what point do you say, okay, forget it. Let's start from the beginning. Start from scratch. And the problem with doing that is that the supply chain constraints on getting these fancy business class seats will set them back years and years and years. So this will be going from something that will hopefully be starting to roll out next year to something that let's check back in in 2030. And I don't think Lufthansa can wait that long. Sticky situation. Yeah, I guess there's no good answer here. It's just get it on the planes and be done with it. Yep. All right. You know what? Speaking of being done with it, I think we're done with this episode. Okay. Call it. All right. Episode 240 is in the books. Thank you all so very much for listening. As we begin the month of November, we will politely request that you wander over to wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave us a rating or a review. It helps visibility of the show on whatever platform you're listening to it. It helps other people find it. And not for nothing, but it brings a warm feeling to Jason's heart and mine. And we really do appreciate it. And we really appreciate everyone listening and tuning in each week. I love reading the reviews, even the negative ones. Sometimes the negative ones are more fun to read, but I certainly do enjoy the positive ones as well. Yes. Especially so those. Very much appreciated if you would be so kind. This has been episode 240 of Talk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Urbanowitz. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.